So this evening, uh, I would like to look a little at one of the three trainings. So when we do a retreat, in a way we cultivating the three trainings in different ways, which will be also different in daily life, which will happen tomorrow for most of us. So the three trainings, as I mentioned at the beginning, are the trainings of ethics, of meditation, of wisdom. And uh, my teacher in Korea used to say that we need to cultivate them equally together. And that he said it's like a tripod there. I mean, nowadays it's different, but in old days they had this uh, iron tripod. They would put the pot on and underneath they would put some fire. And he said, if you, if you have the three, then it works. If you just have two, not much happens. If I have one, really nothing happens. So in a way, it's to see that the meditation is in a context with wisdom and with ethics. And that kind of, in a way, the three, as it is said, are helping each other, are supporting each other, are complementing each other. And in a way, on a retreat, it's fairly easy uh, to be re relatively ethical, unless you spend all your time sitting on the cushion plotting revenge and to kill somebody. You know, there is, in a way, little scope. <laughs> but, and I think that, in a way, ethics is basically about relationship. So often we see ethics as rule and regulation. But here I would see more ethics as how do we relate? And so is how do we relate to ourselves? How do we relate to others? So as I mentioned at the beginning, do we relate in a harmless, generous, respectful way? Or do we relate in a harmful, unkind, disrespectful way. So I think, in a way, and so it's in the hustle and bustle of uh, daily life that we have, in a way, we are in relationship in many different ways with people, with the environment, with animals. And so what sustain, on what basis, are those relationships? Is it a relationship which is basically about me? Is it a relationship which really considering equally self and others? And so the, I would say, Buddhist ethic is generally really based on these compassionate ethics. And you could also say situational ethics. Because although you have the precept, and like in the Son tradition, when I train, you had the Bodhisattva precept, and there are 49, 59 of them. But what was interesting in Korea is that you took them every year. The lay people took them as a reminder, as an inspiration, again, as an orientation, what they intended to do. And the monastic, took them every month. Again, as a reminder, this is what is important. 
and I translated them. And the reason I did that was over time I started to know enough of the language that I could understand what they were because I took them without knowing what they were because in those days you did not have uh, as much translation as you have now. And so I was sitting there and after a few months and I started to think, oh yeah, this one is about this. Oh, that one is about that. And then, oh, this is why the monks and the nuns do this. This is why the monks and the nuns do that. And so I could really see that in a way, the fact that they recited them, that they aspired to them, actually uh, made a difference to the way people behaved in the monastery. So in a way, we have this orientation. It's a bit like the Brahma Vihara. We have an orientation, but here you could say it's an active orientation because it's going to be not just, I am harmless and you sit there in meditation, it's easy to be harmless, but it's how to relate at the office, how to relate in the supermarket, how do you relate in whatever situation. I mean, a good one is, how do you relate when you are driving? This is an interesting one. Are you an ethical, calm, composed driver? And uh, my nephew was so surprised because generally he doesn't drive with us, but we were lost, so he drove with us. And he said, hmm, Stephen is really excited. Because <laughs> Stephen generally is not very excited, but uh, put him in the car and sometimes. <laughs> so how are we, you know, in different situations? And then what is also interesting with ethics is actually the relationship with feeling to. To me, I think there is kind of this very interesting relationship there, connection. Because if you look at, for example, the five precepts, actually the five precepts, Buddhist precepts, are about helping us to deal with our feeling tone, helping us to creatively engage with them instead of being reactive. I mean, if we look at the first one, do not kill, do not harm. When would we, when would we kill, when would we harm? Generally, when you have an unpleasant feeling tone. I mean, if somebody is very nice to you, most of the time you don't plan to harm them. But somebody says something nasty to them, nasty to you, <gasps> immediately you want to give it back. It's interesting. We experience an unpleasant feeling tone and in a way immediately we kind of generally, you kind of can feel some uh, aggression. It's very interesting. If you have an unpleasant feeling tone, the tone of your voice, the way you relate. And so, so in a way, personally, I think if we look at ethics, we have to also look at the feeling tone and how am I reacting or creatively engaging, for example, with unpleasant feeling tone so that they don't lead me 
to harm myself or to harm others. I mean, the next one, the precept is do not steal. I mean, why would you steal? Well, generally because you have a very pleasant feeling tone in connection to some object. You know, I want that. You know, you're not trying to steal it because you don't care. Generally, there is a connection. I want that. Or there is a one about uh, kind of uh, harmful sexual activities, the same. I mean, why would you do it? Generally, because you think only on yourself and there is this uh, feeling tone, pleasant feeling tone, or hope of a pleasant feeling tone. Then you have an interesting one with lying. So one of the precepts is do not lie. And then why would we lie? And it can be either. It's very interesting. Truth and feeling tone. And the fact is sometimes we say a lie because we don't want to experience an unpleasant feeling tone. Or we say a lie in order to experience a pleasant feeling tone. So when we're not truthful, it's interesting. What, what, what's the feeling tone there? And it's the same with the last one. The last one is a recommendation not to take intoxicant or alcohol, which would make you uh, be harmful in a way to yourself, to others. And then if you look there again, Either you take intoxicant because they give you a good feeling tone, or you take intoxicant or alcohol to cover an unpleasant feeling tone. And so I think what can be very interesting in terms of ethics can be this mindfulness of the feeling tone and how, again, the underlying tendency with the feeling tone and how they influence us. Because personally, I feel that the feeling tone have a strong influence on how we relate and how we behave. And that's why I think they're really important in terms of ethics. And then I wanted to look at uh, the three, if you look at the Eightfold Path, then in the middle, of the eight, you have three which are basically, you could say, directly about ethics. You have appropriate speech, you have appropriate action, and you have appropriate livelihood. And here, appropriate speech, to me this is a great practice. And so in a way we can see that the three training can be really cultivated together with the speech. Because in a way, in order to cultivate appropriate, harmless, beneficial speech, first we have to be mindful, what do we say? How do we say it? And also, what is the effect of what we say on others? There is a, this very interesting idea in the Son tradition when I trained in Korea, that you have the intention, 
then you have the action, and then you have the effect. And they say, consider the three. Because often you have this idea in Buddhism that intention is the main one. If you have a good intention, everything is fine. But here they're saying, look, you have the intention. I could be good intention, but the, the action might not be so good, and the result might not be so good. You could have good intention, good action, and the result might not be so good. I mean, you can have very different things. And so in a way, that idea helps us to look a little bit at speech. How do we speak? What do we say? What's the effect of it? And also, to me, that's why one of the big, as I mentioned before, of the silence on a retreat is to really question in a caring and careful way, not in a judgmental way, but in a caring and careful way, to start to question what I say. Do I need to say this? Do I need to say it like it now? Can it wait? Can I say it later? Can I say half of it? And so it's kind of like often with speech, we have this quick, you could nearly say quick reflex that we speak and it's kind of like the speech, the speaking take over. And sometimes we f speak faster than we think. And so in a way, back to the feeling tone, what's the feeling tone when we speak? What's the energy when we speak? And I think the mindfulness could bring, it doesn't mean that we have to speak very slowly, but to bring some caring and careful mindfulness to speech itself. And so I wanted to read a quote. This is from uh, the Buddha about appropriate speech. And what, what it looks at here, what I like in this quote, in, is the fact that you really look at different things. He's not just kind of saying, you know, always speak appropriately, but he's looking at the different type of speech, the different kind of effect of that, and also the tone of it and the type. So then he says, he or she does not in full awareness speak falsehood for his or her own ends or for another hands or for some petty worldly end. So here the first thing, he doesn't speak or she doesn't speak falsehood. So it's about not lying. But then he look, in a way, why, why, do, why would we lie? So do we lie for our own benefit? Or do we lie for somebody else's benefit? Or do we lie to take advantage of some people for some purpose? So it's kind of looking at what is, here is looking a little at what is the intention. So kind of looking at, can we be truthful? And of course, it is not always appropriate to be truthful. And then do you have to say something? Maybe not. 
often I say no comment. You know, if somebody, often people ask me, what do you think of this teacher? I don't know anything. I say, I don't know. Sometimes I say no comment. If, they think, if I think they're dangerous, and I will say, I think they might be dangerous, especially if they're young, beautiful ladies. I might say, possibly not. You know, be careful with that one. So it just depends what is appropriate. So the thing that you don't speak falsehood doesn't mean you need to say the truth, truth all the time to everybody to the same degree. So again, it's kind of how do we use truthfulness? I think there we have to be very careful. Then abandoning malicious speech. He abstained from malicious speech. He doesn't repeat elsewhere what he has heard here in order to divide those people from these. Nor does he repeat to these people what he has heard elsewhere in order to divide these people from those. So that's interesting. He's basically saying, when we speak, what do we speak about? And often, we speak about other people. I mean, I had a friend as a practice for three months. He decided I will not speak about anybody else to somebody else if the first person is not in the room. And he said he diminished his speaking by 70%. <laughs> that was a very interesting exercise. So here, it's kind of looking, you, you speak about somebody else or you speak about a situation to some people. What's behind it? And I think this is something we have to be careful about is what I would call collusion. When somebody comes to you and tries to get you on board on their side, or if you have some problem, you try to get somebody on your side. Once there was difficulty between friends of mine, and I was trying to be in the middle, and then I could see both of them wanted to me to, in a way, collude with uh, them, and I, and I did not want to. But even if I did not want to, they would say, oh, but Martin said that. And I would say, oh, so somebody else would tell me, oh, you said that, he said, or she said, you said that. I said, wait a minute, I did not say that in that way. <laughs> so it's kind of looking, that's back a little to the truth also. How are we using speech to arrange things? And also, are we using speech intentionally or not intentionally to create discord. That, that, I think, is something to me which is a really important ethical point about the Buddha, and that's why that he says, since he, she is one who reunites those who are divided, a promoter of friendships, who enjoys concord, rejoices in concord, delight in concord, a speaker of word that promote concord. So in a way, I think with ethics, there is a question. Is ethics just about restraint? I stop doing something, so in a way, I intentionally do not cause harm. Or is restraint, is uh, ethics 
cultivating something intentionally. And I think it is both, actually. There is a certain amount of it can be about restraint, but I think another part of it is really about cultivation. And here he's saying, how can you become more mindful in a way so that you help to create harmony instead of creating disharmony? And I think this is something we can really work on at many different levels. That it be among a family, that it be among friends, that it be in an office. I mean, once I was uh, working many years ago in an office and I could really see two persons really not getting on. And it, they kept kind of getting into trouble with each other. And so finally I thought, okay, maybe I can, you know, try to help. So I got them together and I said, okay, how do you see your work? How do you do see yourself in your work, in the workplace? And so each really explained where they were coming from. And because I was there, they could do it in a way which was kind to each other, where they could listen to each other. And so what they understood is that they were so different and that there's such different expectation of each other because of their difference. One was very efficacious and the other one was very friendly. The first one could make the thing work very well and the other one created a nice atmosphere. <laughs> and so in a way, by listening to each other, they could see that each brought something and each missed something. And so once they saw that, then actually they were able to work together much more easily. So in a way, it's kind of looking, are we helping harmony? Are we helping understanding? Or are we making misunderstanding among others? And then the last one is abandoning harsh speech. He abstains from hard speak. He speaks such words as are gentle, pleasing, etc. And so here, what is interesting is a tone. It's kind of like what kind of word we use and how we use them. And then again, you can have so many different styles because this can be very cultural. In some culture, you can speak in a very direct manner. In other culture, you'll have to talk in a very indirect manner. And also the tone, which is acceptable or not in the culture, can make a difference. And so I think here we really, the mindfulness is to really see that we cannot speak the same way to, ev to everybody all the time. I think we have to adapt. And I think that's where, the, in a way, the mindfulness, the meditation also coming with the ethics. To know, in a way, when you speak, basically you want to be heard. You want to be understood. But then you would have to see, I mean, I find it interesting when you have um, people who don't speak the, the language. And then you think, well, you know, they should understand. So you speak louder thinking they will understand better, generally not, you know, to shout doesn't generally help. 
So it's kind of like... And then what is interesting here with the tone is to look what are the conditions that are going to make a difference to the tone of my voice. Actually, to look, that I think is where it's very interesting to bring, you could nearly say, looking at hindrances and ethics. So in a way, what stops me from speaking in a kind way? And so I would say unpleasant feeling tone often makes us speak more harshly, but also being busy. Being busy generally makes us kind of in this efficacious mode. And then, yeah, let's go, let's do it. And then suddenly our tone is very different. So, so it's kind of like, how can we play with that? How we can explore that? And so in many different ways, I think appropriate speech, cultivating how we speak, the word, I think this is such an exploration of the practice. And where we really have to learn. I mean, this is not something which we always get right. I think it's very important to see that with ethics, it's not always behaving in the same way all the time. Because we don't know. We have the good intention, we have the good action, but what is going to be the result? It depends. And then learning from that. I think that's what the three are about. Not, I must get it right all the time. But what are the conditions which will affect? And what is the result? What's the effect on others? Then you have appropriate action. So again, we could see, okay, we can restrain ourselves, and then you have let's say, possibly less harmful action. But at the same time, how can I cultivate also beneficial action, beneficial act? So then action can refer to so many different things. What I do, how I do it, what I eat, what I, how I drive, how I work. I mean, this is interesting. So in a way, it's kind of like this appropriate action. What is an appropriate action? Of course, you have the intention, then you have the action itself, and then you have the result of the action. And so I think here we have to be very careful that the mindfulness doesn't become self-conscious so we're always second-guessing what we're going to do. I think this is very important, that this practice of uh, mindfulness is not about making us even more self-conscious about what we do, but to be more in the experience. What goes on? What's in when I act, looking a little bit at the feeling tone that might affect the action, looking a little bit at the intention, and then also looking at the result. And so in a way, it's kind of also, how do we do it, this action? So it's kind of, 
here it's really how I mean how we are in the world, how we are with the environment, how we are with the resources, how we drive, how we are in the supermarket. I mean, this is what, for me, that's one of the practice. Standing in the queue in the supermarket. I find that very interesting because a lot of our action are generally driven by self, you know, my advantage. I mean, we have a tendency to look out for ourselves. And so generally we want to gain time. And that I find wonderful in the supermarket, you know. I'm always looking for the shorter queue. You know, you know. And then you are in the, you finally go think you got the shorter queue. And then it's not. You know, mm. same when you're driving, you know, finding a way where you can. And it's interesting the action. You know, because of course, I mean, if I don't take care of myself, nobody else is going to do it. So you need a certain amount of thinking about yourself. But I think what is interesting in terms of action is how much anatta, not self, and how much self there is within it. Do, we do, do I do this for my own interest? Do I convince the other it's really for their own interest, but actually it's for my own interest? And how much leeway? easier in terms of action, in terms of I want what I want. And I think that is really, in terms of action, it's interesting to look at how much selfing is there, how much our advantage is there. And then to me that's where beautiful, when you actually consider yourself as much as the other. So it's not that you consider more the other, but the two are taken in consideration. And so I think sometimes it's interesting to look at the intention of the action, what's behind it. Not in this judgmental way, I need to do the right thing, but more to explore, you know, how much grasping is there, how much responding is there. And then you have appropriate livelihood. And this is a tricky one because, I mean, if you look at the definition in the old days, it was, you know, uh, do not kill people, do not sell arms, do not sell poison, uh, do not use improper weight and things of that nature. But if you look nowadays, to, I mean, there are certain livelihoods which are really obviously uh, appropriate livelihood. You could say a doctor, a social worker, uh, and you could say that some are definitely uh, not appropriate. Like I had a friend many years ago when he was doing this kind of young people thing, being in Australia, and the only job he could find was... Uh, to cut the necks of chicken. And so he did it a day, chuck, chuck, chuck. And then after a day, I can't do this. Like that really was not something he could do. So some are obvious, one side or the other. 
And some are really not very obvious because it's so many different things which come together. Uh, once I was working with someone who was working for a pharmaceutical company in a certain way, and sometimes she thought, mm, yes, it's appropriate, and sometimes she thought, mm, I'm not sure. And so many things are connected nowadays that it's hard, you know, sometimes to totally feel comfortable with all the condition in terms of livelihood. So I think again here, you know, where there is also we do the best we can within the situation. But also to look the livelihood, again, what is it about? Is it about sustaining myself? Is it about accumulating? Is it about, what is it about? Because I think in a way we need to work, we need to sustain ourselves. And so to also look at that, and also, with work, what I found very interesting is the feeling tone. The feeling tone in relationship to how you look at your work. And some work are really, in the culture, are enhanced. You know, like if you're a computer programmer, if you're a surgeon, generally people think, wow, that's great. And generally, you paid lots of money. And then there is other job, like possibly being a house cleaner. I was a house cleaner for 10 years. And I think it should be paid more myself, you know. <laughs> and this is as good a job as any. But you see, I think it's interesting the way we put value on ourselves through the work we have. And in a way, what is important, again, is that it's harmless and that we can do it relatively well, and that it can sustain us. So I think that's interesting. What is my relationship to the value of the work? Then you also have, how do I do the work? What kind of attitude do I bring to the work? And I think there, in terms of uh, livelihood, I think it's really interesting. How do we work? And I think there the mindfulness can really help us. Because often I think we work and we think I must go fast. And then we're working and we're already thinking of what we're going to do next and then we do next and we're already thinking of what we do next. And I'm not, not saying that in some situation you are pushed to do that. But I think if we can be really mindful of what we do now, then move on to the next thing, very mindful of that. And so in a way, to look a little bit, how do I work? Because also, you could be kind of work, for example, for a charity, and it could be a wonderful charity. And actually, you might not treat well the worker within the charity. Or the worker within it might not treat each other well. Although they have lots of kind of wonderful idea for others. <laughs> and that's what I really liked in a way many years ago, a few years back, when you had the Occupy movement in New York. And everybody was asking them, what do you want? How do you want to achieve it? And they said, oh, before that, we want to, to do it in a way which respect everybody. 
So everybody said, ah, oh, we don't have the time for that. What do you want? How do you want it? I said, no, 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 no. And I thought it was beautiful that actually what they were first concerned about is how do we treat each other? How do we treat the environment? How could we act together in a different way? I thought that was very interesting to kind of start with that. Because then if you start with that, then you, in a way, going to look at the solution in a different way too. The way you're going to apply it. You're not going to force people. You're going to say, wait a minute. How can we work with that in a way people want to come together with it instead of fighting them? And so this is back to what the Buddha said. I mean, we might work by oneself, but then what kind of pressure do we put on ourselves in our relationship to the work? I mean, I was talking recently to somebody who is trying to make a new center. And he's really done lots of meditation and he's a wonderful person. But starting his center, I mean, I'm saying, oh, I'm starting to be obsessed by how many people will come and if they don't come, and he kind of, that's all I can think about, numbers. And he would say, woo, you know, like uh, he became very aware of it. So that's why he was kind of trying to talk with me about it so he could kind of, kind of be more clear with it. But it's hard. You know, you want to achieve something, look towards something. And then that's the question. Do you grasp at it? Do you kind of bring a lot of selfing within it? How do you creatively engage with it? And it's hard because if you don't do anything, nothing will happen. But if you force it too much, that's going to be a strain. It could be harmful to yourself, to others. So it's kind of like, how do we consider our livelihood? And how much of our identity is in it? Like, if we don't have the work, is it that we don't exist? Or we do? You see, I think of, often it's kind of to see when we act. When we act, or when we speak, like I know somebody, she, she speaks a lot, all the time. And uh, she's a friend of my mother. And so sometimes she phones once a month my mother, and my, sometimes I go down, and my mother is like, <laughs> and I think, oh, she phoned. <laughs> and the feeling I have is that she exists when she talks. And when she does not talk, she, possibly she has less of a feeling she exists. And I think the same with action. We act, we do, we garden. I know when I garden, I love it. So I start it and I think, yes, I'll just do a little bit of that. And then, yeah, I'm going to do this and that. And I've been in, oh, no, no, I haven't. <laughs> and it's kind of like, of course, when we act, it makes us move, it makes us engage. And so we feel really alive. But if we identify with just I am me when I'm alive like that. 
then actually we can become very tired because we only have so much energy. Or we can identify with the role. I mean, if I identify with being a, a meditation teacher and then I teach everybody, you know, the supermarket cashier, <laughs> you must do mindfulness, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, as you do the cashier, yeah, just breathe, you know. You know. And then I go to the bakery, the same, you know. I would be a bit weird. You know? So when I do it, I do it the best I can. And when I don't do it, I'm not a meditation teacher. And sometimes I think, if they knew I was a meditation teacher, they would think, whoa, what meditation teacher? So it's kind of like to see these different things give our part of our identity. But only one part, they're not all of it. And so in a way, kind of, to me, that's what this is. This ethics is not about being a certain way, but it's really exploring, very much about exploring conditions, exploring relationship, exploring intention. How do we orient ourselves? What is important? What gives value in our life, in our relationship? So that's what I wanted to say. And then I had a, a question, which I will answer. So this is a question we are asked nowadays. In the old days, this question was not asked. Is there a difference between mindfulness and meditation? So, uh, you see, what I think is very important to see that until John Kabat-Zinn had his vision, uh, in, in a book, he tells of his vision uh, about applying mindfulness in a secular life with medical purpose, etc. And he, had, uh, he says it in a beautiful article in a book. And so he had this vision of how to apply mindfulness. Before, before that, mindfulness really was not a buzzword. I think it's very important to see that. Before John kabat came in, and made it what it is now, a Zen person would have not used the word mindfulness. A Tibetan person would not have used the word mindfulness. And now everybody uses it. That you be Zen, Tibetan, you name it, they all do mindfulness. So I think you have to be very aware of like kind of, for us, if you are kind of Buddhist, mindfulness used to have a very specific meaning. It basically referred to sati, and generally to a certain technique of meditation in the Theravada Vipassana inside tradition of Southeast Asia. But even that, it's a slightly recent construct and came actually because of British colonization. This is very interesting, that story, but too long to tell, talk about now. But you can find article about it. It's a wonderful story. The Burmese, because the, the English were putting down their king, and the king was supposed to uphold the Dharma. They thought if 
the king does not uphold the Dharma, who is going to do it? And then one of the great uh, teachers said, the people will do it. And then he had this idea of this uh, way to practice, which now would be called Vipassana meditation, insight meditation, mindfulness meditation, which was still there before, but not in that popular way for everybody. So you can find it on the internet if you want. You can ask me about it. So now mindfulness can refer to many different things. Mindfulness can refer to, I mean, now you have mindfulness for everything. I, even a fellow, I think, wrote a book about mindful hunting. <laughs> Personally, I have a little hard time with that. Uh, bon. so, so let's say, to be simple and not go into all the technical detail, you have meditation. So meditation, you could say you have meditation in many different ways. You have Christian meditation, Buddhist meditation, Hindu meditation. You have many different ways to meditate. And some time ago, I was at a place, and it was very interesting. Somebody was talking about a very specific Sufi type, Islamic type of meditation concentrated on the heart. That was very interesting. So you have many different types of meditation. But here, let's just talk, let's say, about Buddhist meditation. So you have Buddhist meditation. And so as I said at the beginning, personally, I would say Buddhist meditation is based on this idea of anchoring and inquiry. But then, this is done in so many different ways. In the Zen school, in the Tibetan school, in the Theravada school. So you could say meditation is a generic term. And then among meditation, you have mindfulness meditation. And then generally you find that in the Theravada, Vipassana, inside tradition. And so then they generally would use the term sati. And most of the other like the Zen or the Tibetan might use the term mindfulness, but generally they would not use the term sati, because that's really for the, used in the Theravada tradition. So basically, mindfulness meditation, you could say, is about being aware. So it's what we did most of the week. But like the questioning meditation, you would not call that mindfulness meditation, though... Personally, I would say that if you do questioning meditation, it helps you to become mindful. The little difficulty with mindfulness meditation is that you use mindfulness to cultivate mindfulness, to produce mindfulness. <laughs> so it's kind of like, which one are you talking about? The cultivating one, the effect one, or the producing one? It's kind of, that's a little the difficulty with the term. So in some technique, they use directly mindfulness meditation. So they're mindful of the breath. So generally, they use the full mindfulness, the body, 
the feeling tone, the mental state, and then in the fourth one, you have many different things. And that's generally what's referred to as mindfulness meditation. But nowadays, if you are less technical, you could say mindfulness meditation is about being aware in a non-judgmental way, and sometimes you might not even have an anchor. But I would say my meditation is a broader term, and then you have mindfulness, and then you might have a technical way to talk about mindfulness. In the same way that you could say you have the Vipassana tradition. So the Vipassana tradition is a, with a big V. So it's a tradition which comes from Theravada and Southeast Asia, Theravada tradition. But then you have Vipassana with a small V, which just means looking deeply. So sometimes you have to say, are you talking about the tradition or are you talking about the technical term in terms of the meditation? So that's in short the answer to that question. So anything else? Any questions or comments? So if there is nothing, then... There will be some uh, walking meditation before the final sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.